Hello, welcome along. It's the universe's favourite podcast. This is the Fun Kids Science Weekly. My name is Dan. Thank you for being there. It's the part of the week where we scour the universe. We search through the solar system, finding all the best science secrets lurking around. Now, this week, we'll head back to the age of the dinosaurs. We'll take a look at how all the creatures lived. Some were in their herds with mates, and others roamed the Cretaceous period alone. Uh Uh-oh, let's hide. We've got company. Don't panic. It's a herd of iguanodons. Also, there is a brand new movie out on Netflix. It's all about time travel. It's called The Adam Project. It's about a dude from the future who heads back to the present to meet his past self. Get your head around that. Now, inspired by that, we'll chat to a futurologist. Someone who knows what might the world be like in 50 years' time. I think in 2052 it's very likely we will have pod systems where you've got very simple pods uh, being driven on smart infrastructure. So they're very, very cheap, probably a couple of thousand dollars a pod, and they'll just uh, float along on magnetic linear induction mats or something like that. They might not even have wheels because you can levitate them. And I've got your questions, as always. This week, they're on water and birds. So lots on the way. Stick around. It's a brand new Fun Kids Science Weekly. Right, let's kick off the show with this week's science in the news. Scientists have changed the rules for what makes a heat wave in the UK. The country has had the bottom temperature for what makes it hot enough raised by one degree, which means for you to call it a heat wave, it needs to be at least 26 degrees. Uh, That's not all. For it to be an official heat wave, it needs to be above 26 degrees for three days in a row. It's all because of the climate crisis. Also, get this, babies figure out how close people are to each other by looking at saliva. You know saliva, that's the water in your mouth. Well, babies, they're always watching. And they figured out that if you share your saliva with another person, maybe by sharing food, licking the same ice cream or something, whatever, you're probably quite close to them. Now, they figured out that strangers don't do that. So they use that to work out how good friends people are. And also, the number of planets known outside our solar system has passed 5,000. NASA recently found 60 more planets, which means there's 5,005 planets out there that we know about. There are 1,500 gas giants, 200 small and rocky planets, and 1,600 super-Earths. And now the experts are trying to find out if they're capable of having life... Let's catch up with Professor Hallux now. He's one of our favourite geniuses on the show. We join him every week with his Map of Medicine series. You can listen to the full lot on the Free Fun Kids app, by the way. He's looking at why you might get sick and then who makes you better. Now, this week, Hallux is having some trouble fitting into his favourite trousers. A bit like your dad. The week after Christmas. So him and Nurse Nanobot are having a look into why a healthy, balanced diet is very important. Professor Hallux's Map of Medicine. Hmm, these trousers must have shrunk. Are you still trying to get into those trousers, Professor? I told you, they're too small. You've put on weight. Nonsense, Nurse. I just need to pull them in a bit. Maybe if I breathe in. 
Oh, that's Tornit. They were my favourite ones too. Purple stripes. Um, Professor, I can see your pants. I think you should go and find some other trousers. Bigger ones this time. What's wrong with my spotty pants? No pleasing some people. Well, you give us the clinical crunch on weight whilst I get changed. <laughs> clinical crunch. Whoops. We all need food to live. But sometimes we carry too much weight for our height, and this is known as obesity. Around one in seven children are obese, and it's thought that in 15 years' time, over a third of all grown-ups will be overweight too. This is something that is very much worse today than it was in the past. And do you know why? That's one reason. Lots of us get driven about in cars and travel on buses instead of getting everyday exercise by walking. Our lives today are less active and if you don't burn off the energy you get from the food you eat, it is stored as fat on your body. And there's another reason. If your diet includes lots of sugary or fatty foods, you'll be taking in much more energy than you can burn off. Right. I'm back and you'll be pleased to hear my pants are under wraps now. Much better. What a relief. To be honest, you're right that I need to lose a little weight. And it isn't just so I fit into my favourite trousers. Being overweight can lead to diseases like diabetes, heart disease and other nasties. Not worth it. Well, that map of medicine of yours should have some brilliant info on the healthcare expert for this, a dietitian. Let's load it up and get the low down. Opening the map of medicine. Good idea, nurse. So a dietitian. Any ideas what they're specialists in? There's a bit of a clue in the old name there. Yep, you got it. Diets. But diet doesn't mean healthy food. Diet is just the word that describes whatever you're eating regularly. You can have healthy diets, unhealthy diets, vegetarian diets, dog food diets. Yeah, okay, that was a joke. It's mostly dogs that have that sort of diet. If you're overweight or have been poorly, a dietitian's job is to look at your diet and suggest changes to make you healthier. And it often starts with a bit of detective work. To get the evidence to solve the case, a dietitian might ask you to keep a food diary. This isn't where you talk about what some carrots did at school today. It's a log of everything you are eating each day from the first bite of toast to the last slurp of hot chocolate, as well as notes about what you get up to. By going through the diary, the dietitian may be able to see what sorts of foods you're eating too much of. But there's more to it than that. They're often looking for clues on your lifestyle too. You don't really need me to tell you that if you play a lot of computer games or watch telly a lot of the time, then you're not going to be using up all that energy from the toasts and hot chocolates. You know that. I know that. Sometimes things are a bit more complicated though. Normal food shouldn't make you feel sick. If you always have an upset tummy after eating certain foods, it might be that you have an intolerance to that food. I hope you washed your hands. If you become very unwell or find it hard to breathe after eating certain foods, you may have an allergy. These are serious medical problems and a dietitian is one part of the chain to discover what's making you poorly and helping you to eat safely. 
without any nasty side effects. I beg your pardon? Right, never mind safe. Let's have something less sensible. Any disgusting details for us, nurse? Oh, yes. Where food is concerned, there are plenty of festering facts. Disgusting detail. The Guinness Book of Records is full of people attempting to eat silly things. And here's an extremely silly record. An American lady called Sonia Thomas holds the record for eating the most hard-boiled eggs. 65 in less than 7 minutes. She can also eat 18 hot dogs in 12 minutes. Excellent. Do you get it? Excellent. Oh, please yourself. Time for us to go. But before you join us again, why not explore Map of Medicine for yourself? Alex's Map of Medicine is produced by Fun Kids with support from the Wellcome Trust. Let's get to your questions then. If there's anything that you want answered, anything at all about science, something rattling around your brain that you just need figuring out, let me know. Leave it as a review on Apple Podcasts. First this week is from Keo, who is 10, who wants to know, what is water made from? Now, water is very simple. It's H2O. Now, everything in the universe is made of atoms. We know about this. They're tiny things. They are the building blocks to everything around, to you, to something you touch, to the air. Everything is made of tiny little atoms. They stick together. Now, when more than one different type sticks together, they're called molecules. And groups of these molecules build up and build up, and then they make everything that we know and see. Now, water is a molecule called H2O, which means there are two hydrogen atoms, H2, and they join to one oxygen atom, O. And that makes a water molecule. So that's what water is made from. And there are billions and billions and billions of these molecules in a single drop of H2O water. Thank you for the question, Keo. Uh, Also this week from Evie in Sussex, who wants to know, how can birds fly if gravity is pulling them down? Well, birds' wings have two big features which help out with this. They've got feathers and very strong muscles. Now, the feathers help trap air and they push it downwards. The muscles then force that air down to thrust the birds upwards. Now, that gives them the lift. Now, when a bird is already flying, these wings are slick and smooth. Get your head around this. It makes the air rushing towards the bird lift over the top of the wing very quickly. This means, keep up, this means there's less, there's more air beneath the wing than above, so it pushes it into the space. It keeps lifting it up and lifting it up, and that's why birds can fly when there is gravity around. It's quite complicated, uh, but I think we've done all the important bits there, Evie. Thank you for the question. If there's something you want answered on the Science Weekly next week, you've got to get to Apple Podcasts, and you've got to leave it as a review for us there. It's the Fun Kids Science Weekly. I don't know if you've seen this new movie that's out on Netflix. It's called The Adam Project. It's all about a boy who travels into the future and then meets himself. And then they go time traveling to save the world together. That's him and himself. Now, I love a time travel movie, but I'm always wondering whether the stuff that you see in the future can ever come true. So we're going to find out this week with Ian Pearson, who is a futurologist. Ian, thank you for being there. Oh, it's a pleasure. 
Now, just to clear this up for us, what is a futurologist? It sounds quite an incredible job to have. A futurologist is just somebody who studies the future. I'm really an engineer. I've worked my whole career in engineering, but I've always been in the engineering of stuff that won't exist for 20, 30 years. So when you're thinking about uh, which world you're going to bring this stuff into, uh, obviously you have to think about the future, and that bit is more fun than the engineering bit. So I spend most of my life thinking about what the future looks like and uh, some of the time trying to invent the technologies that will populate it. It's interesting you say it's studying the future. The word study kind of hints that you're reading books and you're learning what has happened. How can you possibly learn about what has not happened yet? Well, as I said, I'm an engineer and I look at uh, what you can do in basic engineering not just today, but based on latest science and technology, very fundamental core stuff, uh, you know, what could you do with that if it was developed by another 10, 20, 30 years of R&D? Where might it go? Uh, what products and services might people do with that? How might companies and everyday life use these technologies? So you can invent products and services that won't exist for 20, 30 years that you couldn't possibly build today, but which you would be able to build with the technologies we know will be coming off the R&D pipelines in that sort of time frame. So things like the lightsaber that we see on this film, not really a lightsaber like the Star Wars one, but it looks the same basically. And the the idea is that you could make something like that with a suspension of graphene flakes, for example. You could suspend those in a magnetic field, and then you could shine a laser beam up and bounce it off one of those so that whichever thing you hit with the lightsaber, you could basically cut somebody's arm off or whatever with it. So we've got some idea how you might make a lightsaber already. You couldn't do it today, but you could probably do it in 20, 30 years' time. So it's a realistic weapon to have on a film that's got somebody coming back from 2052. What's interesting is that we we know we could do it, but we don't have the technology today. What I, I guess why we don't we have that technology? You're talking about that lightsaber the, yeah. that's in the film, kind of the laser sure. sword. If we know all the different parts that we need, why have we not got them yet? It just takes time to develop all of those bits. I mean, we have graphene flakes, but we don't have the artificial intelligence level to be able to manipulate uh, thousands and thousands of these in real time around a magnetic field. We also don't have the technology to focus a magnetic field in that particular uh, accuracy level um, although it's starting to come on, we're starting to get very, very tightly focused magnetic fields through the fusion projects, for example. So we're starting to see development of these things, but it takes a lot of time developing them. Engineers have a lot of problems and they can solve these problems over time, but you can't solve them all overnight. So making something like a lightsaber, we know in principle, how you might go about doing it, but there are so many technology problems to solve in doing so, uh, even with the best willingness and the best funding. You couldn't possibly do it in less than a decade or two. Now, it's all brilliant chatting about a lightsaber. That's pretty amazing to sure. grab our imagination. But what about things that actually we could use every day? For instance, what might a car look like in the future? Or if there even is cars in the future with how we're thinking about the environment? In 2052, what will we be driving, Ian? I think in 2052, it's very likely we will have pod systems where you've got very simple pods uh, being driven on smart infrastructure. So you, the 
very, very cheap, probably a couple of thousand dollars a pod, and they'll just uh, float along on magnetic linear induction mats or something like that. They might not even have wheels because you can levitate them. So you could just have uh, very futuristic looking things. You could build a linear induction mat today. You can even levitate uh, the cars. The first one was done in 1958, I believe. Um, but the um, the technology to do it today, we're already using that on the bullet trains in Japan and in China. But the technology to do the same thing with linear induction mats on the road surface and have pod systems, we could build that in the 2050 timeframe. That would be fairly routine technology in most urban areas. And that's a very low cost way of doing public transport, which would be all electric and uh, driven by a very smart infrastructure. So it doesn't even have to have uh, big uh, AIs in each individual car. It, because it's driven by the infrastructure, it also doesn't have to have very large batteries. So it'd be very environmentally friendly, very lightweight pods, uh, very cheap, very socially inclusive because it could pick you up at your front door and take you to exactly where you want to go. So things like that in the transport systems, we see these things all the time in futuristic sci-fi where people are picked up by pods that are automatically driven. That's entirely realistic. And again, we know more or less how you might do it today. We're just waiting for the individual bits of the technology to roll out through the production lines and the R&D. So we will get there. What are the other headlines then? 2052, what are we seeing? I think in 2052, artificial intelligence and robotics will, of course, be a lot more refined. 30 years is an eternity in technology terms. So today we're talking to our uh, Alexas and Ceres and so on. By 2052, these will be as smart as, as human beings. You'll be able to have perfectly normal, natural conversations with probably conscious computers, which are talking back to you with a full repertoire of emotions. So your, your best friends might be computers, basically AIs. And the robotics that we see on the film, uh, you know, just androids walking around doing things, that's entirely realistic. Again, we might have some of those wandering around our houses as servants and companions. So we, we would have a lot of those robotics. They might not look the same as the ones on the film. That's just artistic license, but you can make them look pretty much any way you want. Uh, we already know more or less how to do the kinds of realistic androids that you see on other science fiction like Westworld, for example, where they look very human-like. So it, we, we could have that sort of stuff too. Drone technology, we see a little bit of that in the film. That could be a lot more developed in 2050. You could have a little flock of drones, maybe insects, insect-sized ones, floating around you all the time, taking selfies of you from every angle, monitoring what's going on around, advising you what's going on and telling you what you might do and uh, acting as your interface to the technology around you. There's so much going on. I, I, guess, I guess lastly, the film The Adam Project, it's all about time travel. Will that ever happen? Is that a possibility? Well, in the in the film, we have real time travel with the guy coming back from 2052 to meet his former self. It isn't the kid going forwards in time. It's the, the older version coming back in time to uh, 2022. But the the idea of, of, of time travel, it's theoretically possible in some interpretations of physics, but we really haven't got a clue how to do it realistically. Something to do with wormholes might work, and that's kind of what they use on the film. So that's a realistic possibility of doing it that way. 
there is no chance we'll be able to do that by 2050s. Uh, it's probably several decades later than that. And we don't have any understanding of physics that says even whether you'd be able to survive such a thing uh, coming back through a wormhole, it might tear you apart at the molecular level, for example. But there is one part of time travel which is feasible. Um, say by 2050, we've got such a good link between computers and our brains using futuristic versions of, of the direct brain links we're already starting to develop today. And if most of your mind is existing in the cloud, you could make a backup of that and you could make a backup of it every single day. So in 2200, you could come back in cyberspace and have a realistic chat with your 2050 self. So that's a kind of time travel in cyberspace. It's not real time travel. You're just accessing a, a previous record on the database. So there's no real time travel involved, but it would feel like time travel. You'd be able to go back and talk to your former self as if you were doing it for real. Incredible. There's so much to look forward to, isn't there? Ian Pearson, thank you so much for joining us. Great pleasure. Now, this week's Dangerous Dan, it's all about a bacteria, a virus that makes insects do something very strange indeed. The treetop disease affects creepy crawlies. Normally moths, butterflies, caterpillars, now they get it by eating dead insects that they find. Ugh! And the virus then gets in, it takes over them, and it makes them act oddly. Very oddly. It turns them into a zombie. Treetop disease makes these caterpillars become obsessed by the light. It takes over them. And because they want to get closer to the sun in the sky, they climb the plants, they climb the trees, they want to get as high as they can until eventually they reach the top. And they can't go any higher. Now, experts don't really know why this happens, but it does. They try to get up as high as they can, and then when they're there, sadly, the creepy crawlies die. And then their bodies lie, waiting for another scavenger insect to come along, fancy a strange snack of an old creepy crawly, and then it starts all over again. The cycle continues. They eat it, they get turned into a zombie, they climb as high as they can, then they die, then they get eaten, then that pet thing, it climbs as high as it can. It keeps going on and on and on. It just happens. It's just one of those things in nature. No one really knows why, but it means the treetop disease goes straight onto our dangerous Dan list. It's time to travel back in time now. This is an episode from our Age of the Dinosaurs series, and you can listen to all of these and time travel whenever you like on the Free Fun Kids app. We're looking at the Cretaceous period and all the creatures around then. And now at this point, the world was home to more animals, more plants, more nature than ever before. So many different species, and they all behaved in different ways. Some preferred to live on their own, and others loved being with their mates in a herd. Age of the Dinosaur with Dinosaur Action Magazine, the number one mag for dino fans. Welcome to the Cretaceous period, which existed between 65 and 144 million years ago. The world by this point was home to a wider variety of environments and species than ever before, and different species behaved in different ways some preferring to live on their own, others liking the company of the herd. Uh-oh, let's hide. We've got company. Don't panic. It's a herd of iguanodons. They're plant eaters and more interested in the vegetation around here. 
They have to be, as they need to consume the equivalent of 300 bananas every day. Iguanodon fossils have been found all over the world, which means they were a common sight in Cretaceous times. They reached up to 11 meters in length and were experts at stripping greenery and fruits off plants. Cool! Did you see? It looks like they have hands. That's true. Iguanodons could stand on their rear legs and use their hands to grasp vegetation, a task made easier by their flexible fifth finger. They're on the move again. There they go. Bye. I like them. Fossils of many iguanodons have been found jumbled together in one place, which tells us that they moved in a herd with the adults likely to band together to protect the young from predators. But not all dinosaurs behaved this way. Yes, look at that poor thing over there. Maybe he's lonely. Don't worry, that's a Pinacosaurus. With plates of armor all over his back and an enormous club on the end of his tail, he can look after himself. That tail is perfect for swinging at anyone who thinks he'd make a tasty dinner. Armored dinosaurs such as Pinacosaurus are known as ankylosaurs, meaning armored dinosaurs. They were plant eaters too, like the Iguanodontians. But in fossil finds, there is usually just one of them, so they probably lived and died alone. Look, another herd, and these seem in a hurry. Quick, duck and hide. It's a pack of velociraptors. These sneaky hunters are carnivores and can bring down animals much larger than us. Not only do they have razor-sharp teeth, deadly curved claws and an ability to run fast, they also have very large brains. They were believed to be intelligent enough to hunt together when necessary, outwitting their prey to tear it to pieces. That Pinacosaurus is flexing his tail ready. Quick, let's run. Paleontology, pick. Fossils have been part of the Earth for millions of years, and studying them is something paleontologists are experts at. Once larger rocks in an area have been cleared away, hammers, chisels, and picks are used to tap at the Earth around the fossil to loosen it further. These pieces of rock and earth are called the matrix. Then a series of brushes from stiff to soft are used for delicate work. If the fossil needs to be moved, it's often wrapped in a plaster cast to keep it safe. Just like the sort you would get if you broke your leg. The fine work of removing the remaining rock from the fossil then goes on back at the museum's laboratory. of the Dinosaur with Dinosaur Action Magazine, the number one mag for dino fans. And that is it for this week's Fun Kids Science Weekly. Uh, thank you so much for listening in. If there's a question that you'd like answered on the show next week, you've got to leave it as a review for me. 
over on Apple Podcasts. So easy to do. Just find the Fun Kids Science Weekly there. There's a few things. Leave your name so I can say hello. There's, leave us five stars. That will help me see it. There's a little comment box. That is where you put your question. And I can say hello in the next few weeks. While you're there, there's so many brilliant Fun Kids podcasts we've got. You can listen to them also on the free Fun Kids app, on Google, Spotify, and at funkidslive.com. And Fun Kids, we are a children's radio station from the UK. Listen to us all over the country on your DAB digital radio and at funkidslive.com. See you next week.